not sure if you've ever noticed it, but there is an information table in the corner of the lobby, and on that information table sits this box. Um, it is the prayer request box, and if you, if you put a prayer request in here, it's magic. The elders will pray for you if you put a prayer request in here. And there's usually some um, little prayer request forms you can fill out. Those are delivered to our elders, held in confidence. If there's no request there, just tear off part of your bulletin, write it in there. We just need to get those from you. But what I want to draw your attention to you today primarily is not, not its purpose, but its construction. There was a guy who was a carpenter long ago in a church, uh, over a decade ago, we used to attend. And he, did a he built this for us. And, you know, the edges are routed and, you know, the joints are mitered and reinforced and really smooth. Um, it's a really well-crafted box. And what, what you may not know, though, uh, though I be no carpenter, I have a similar box. It is uh, carefully crafted. Um, a lot of thought went into how it's constructed. In fact, truth be told... Um, I've been working on my box almost, almost a lifetime. Um, it's just the right size. It's not too small. It's not too big. Definitely not too big. Um, it's sturdy. It's reliable. It's functional. It's mine. You've got one too. Some of yours are a little smaller than mine. Some of yours are a little bigger, but most of your boxes are about the same size as my box because we're most comfortable with people who have about the same size box we do. What's the box for? This is where we keep God. It's based, it's based on our experience. We've never seen God do that. It's based... On our theology, God doesn't work that way anymore. We're Baptist. At least he doesn't work that way in Baptist churches. That's why we're here. Okay. Some might actually believe he didn't actually do those things in the Bible either. Um, they're just stories to teach a truth. It didn't really happen. It can be based on our preferences. We want a God that we can understand that acts predictably. A God that's stable. A God that's tame. A God according to our own making that conforms to us, to our thinking. Not one that we bow down to and conform to Him. Even when we don't understand. The ramifications of having a box like this are huge. It determines what we will believe and what God will do in response to our faith. You know what Jesus thinks of our little boxes? I think he just shakes his head and he says, O ye of little faith. See, this is exactly what happened when Jesus went to his hometown. Mark chapter 6, if you'd like to turn there. He returned to people who'd known him since he was just a little guy. People who knew Jesus really well, or at least they thought they did. We find in Mark chapter 6, Jesus went away from there, 
came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. It's like homecoming. You know, you know the game when the bleachers are full. Homecoming. This is homecoming for Jesus. This is Nazareth's famous son. Come home. It'd be like Arnold Palmer coming back to Wake Forest. Did you know that Arnold Palmer went to college here? He learned to play golf, or really he played his college golf on that little course over by the seminary. If Arnold Palmer came back to Wake Forest, uh, we'd have a parade. Um, we'd celebrate. We'd roll out the red carpet. We might, he might get a key to the city. Um, and if we would do that for Arnold, you would expect that the people of Nazareth would do that for Jesus. And at first glance, it looks that way. It says, on the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were astonished. They were amazed. Jesus is doing what he always does. He goes to the synagogue, he begins to teach, and the people were astonished. But they weren't astonished that way. You can tell by the questions that they're asking. Where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. They took offense You know, Jesus responds in the next few verses, and he says to them, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. And he could do no mighty works there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them, and he marveled because of their unbelief. Jesus marveled at their lack of faith. You can contrast this if you were to just look back a chapter in the Gospel of Mark. Um, Jesus had just come from an encounter with a woman who believed if she could just touch the hem of his garment, she would be healed. And she was. And he's just come from a father who believed that Jesus could heal his daughter from her deathbed. He, he even believed that Jesus could raise his daughter up from the dead. And she was. And Jesus comes to his hometown of Nazareth. And he can't do many miracles there. Because of their lack of faith. See, this was a people who had built small boxes for Jesus. He starts teaching in the synagogue. He heals a few people, it says. And what's their reaction? Amazement. But not positively. You can tell by those questions. Where did this man get these things? What's this wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is this not the carpenter? Mary's boy? Who does he think he is? They're saying. We know you, Jesus. We know better. 
And you have to wonder, why would they respond this way? And some have suggested that it might be class prejudice. The carpenters were amongst the common laborers of the day. Really, Jesus was a builder, worked with stone and wood. Just a manual laborer, really. And now he comes back some great teacher and miracle worker? I don't think so. Some have said that it might be a shot at his family background because he's called the son of Mary, not the son of Joseph. That's kind of odd. And some wonder if this still isn't a shot at the rumors of illegitimacy around his birth, even after all these years. But the focus is these people know Jesus. He's a known quantity to them. He's familiar. He's comfortable. They have preconceived expectations of who he is and what he will do. And so he comes back to town as a great teacher and a miracle worker? No, they know better. They know better than that. We know who you are, Jesus, they're saying. Get back in that box where you belong. They know his mom. They know his brothers and sisters. They have a box just Jesus' size, carefully crafted by their experience, their preferences, and maybe even their theology. And it now shapes what they believe about what Jesus will and won't do. And it shapes how Jesus will respond to them. Among those, this, this is the tragedy. Among those who were most familiar with him, Jesus found no honor, no faith, and could do hardly any mighty works. Their lack of faith, their small box, caused them to be offended by him. That is, they stumbled over him. They, they were scandalized by him. It's a strong expression. Jesus used that same expression when he said, you should cut off your hand if it causes you to stumble, if it causes you offense. He used it again when he says, if you cause one of these little ones to stumble, if you cause them to be offended at me, it's better that you should have a millstone tied around your neck and be thrown into the sea. These people were deeply offended. They stumbled over Jesus. They just couldn't believe that he was who he claimed to be. They knew better. They had a box. Just Jesus' size. And it says he couldn't do any mighty works as a result. It's not that he didn't have the power. Jesus had the power. But somehow their lack of faith did limit his ability to release that power and do mighty works in their midst. I wonder if they just never came. I wonder if Jesus is down in the synagogue teaching and he heals some people and word gets out. And it starts going through the community, and the people hear it, and they just say, no way. I know Jesus. He's a carpenter. He makes tables and chairs. He can't do that. I know better. You're not fooling me with this stuff. 
They just never came. They stumbled over him. Why? Because of their box. Because of their preconceived ideas of who he was and what he would and wouldn't do. Boxes that aren't shaped by Jesus' own words and works, but by their preconceived ideas based on their experience and their preferences and maybe even their theology. He's just a carpenter. He's just Mary's boy. We know his brothers and sisters, they're not doing anything miraculous. In fact, they don't even believe in him. You go back a couple chapters in Mark, and this is the recorded encounter with Jesus' family. Mark chapter 3, his family hears about what Jesus is doing. They went out to seize him, for they were saying, he's out of his mind. That's what Jesus' brothers and sisters thought of him. They thought he was crazy. And as best we can piece together the history of the events in the scriptures, um, in the different accounts, Jesus was probably in Nazareth about a year before this. And in the eyes of the people of the town, Jesus got a little out of hand with his teaching, so much so that they grabbed him. Maybe you remember this story. They took him out of town to the edge of a cliff to throw him off, and he mysteriously slipped away from them. They would keep Jesus in his box no matter what it took. So, let me be Captain Obvious and ask you the question. Do you have a box that limits Jesus from doing mighty works in your life? Is there a friend that you, that you won't talk to about Jesus because you know what God won't do in his life? Maybe it's a, maybe it's a family member. Maybe it's your dad or one of your uncles. Maybe it's somebody at work and you know they're not interested. No point in talking to them. Maybe there's a sickness you're reluctant to ask people to pray about because you know God doesn't work that way anymore. Or when you do pray for a miracle or a healing, you qualify it to death because you really don't dare even hope for it for you. Because God may do that for other people. He may do it for, that for the missionaries in Africa, but he's not going to do it for you. Maybe you're reluctant to follow God's ways, maybe in your marriage or with your finances because you know that it doesn't work for you. That's not, that's not the shape of your box. Maybe you're reluctant to follow Jesus at all. Maybe, maybe it's because of your preconceived ideas of what Jesus who Jesus is and what he does. And our, the great art throughout history that's tried to represent Christ doesn't help us here. I mean, you get things like this. This is Jesus. The guy with the halo and the little thing. Yeah, I want, that's Jesus. I want to follow him. Sign me up. Sissy, wimpy Jesus in the robe. I remember I had the privilege of sitting outside of Sheets in Youngsville with one of my son's friends who used to live in my driveway. It was a long story. Um, <laughs> we're sitting outside of Sheets and we're talking 
about faith. And he says to me, he says, um, you know, Mr. Charles, I just can't see myself wearing an I Love Jesus t-shirt. And I know if he could have colored it, he would have colored it pink. And so, you know, I tried to tell him, you don't know Jesus. He's not like that. He was whipped for you. He carried a cross for you. He let them nail his hands and his feet to that cross. And he died there for you. This is not sissy, wimpy Jesus. This is the mighty Savior who bore the cross for you. So this morning, is he a Savior or is he a stumbling block to you? Will you this morning believe and trust that Jesus is that great and mighty Savior who was nailed to a cross so that mercy could come to you from God instead of judgment? This is no wimpy Savior. They nailed his hands and feet there. This is no impotent Savior. On the third day, he conquered death. And his call to you is not simply to say, yeah, I believe Jesus existed, and he sure was nice. No, he is calling you to repent of your sins and your unbelief and place your trust in him as the one who died on the cross for you and rose from the dead and follow him. Will you open up that little box that little Jesus box, and believe? I'm not saying that there are no boundaries that shape what we believe. There are. The scriptures provide them for us. The words and works of Jesus provide them for us. But have we put God in a box not of his own making? One that's shaped by our experiences and our preferences and maybe even our theology? Let's take a lid off. Let's let him be who he is, the Lord of all creation. Are your preconceived ideas about Jesus neutering your expectation of his great works in your life and the lives of those around you? Is there a hopeful expectancy to your prayers? Is your first response to someone with a great need, someone who is suffering a great suffering or a great sickness, to say to them, we should pray because Jesus loves to heal. One day he will. We should pray. And is there a hopeful look in your eye? Jesus was amazed at their unbelief. 
Let's look at a second similar story. Matthew 16. If you want to turn there. Disciples reached the other side of the lake. They had forgotten to bring any bread. Jesus says to them, watch out and beware of the leaven, which is used in the making of bread, of the Pharisees and Sadducees. The disciples begin discussing this amongst themselves, saying, we brought no bread. What Jesus is doing here, he's warning the disciples about the teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees, who were the religious leaders of their day, and they were faithless men who did not believe in Christ. And he's warning them against their teaching. But the disciples don't get it. They think he is fussing them out because they forgot to bring along lunch. Okay. Now, how in the world do you get from beware of the leaven of the Pharisees to dang, we forgot lunch? How do you do that? How does, how do you, how does that happen? Um, I think it happens like this. I think their need that they had no lunch preoccupied them and kept them from hearing what Jesus was saying to them. Their preoccupation with the needs of everyday life kept them from hearing Jesus. You know, you know how it works. Uh, you're, you're planning a trip. It's a day trip to the beach. Everything loaded up. You're on the car. You're driving there. You're halfway to the beach. The beach. You're beyond the point of no return. And you realize you left the cooler in the driveway. All the food and the cooler in the driveway. And the rest of the day, it's driving you crazy. Because now you've got to go out and buy a whole bunch of food, spend a bunch of money on food. You've got to buy a cooler because you left the cooler in the driveway. And it just, it's frustrating you to no end. So you start to blame people around you. That woman thou gave me, Lord. She should have remembered the cooler. Why, did, honey, why didn't you remember the cooler? And there you are sitting on one of the most beautiful stretches of beach on the East Coast. And you're miserable because you forgot the cooler. It's back in the driveway. Had to go bend as much money on food. Buy a new cooler. I think, that's, I think that's what may have been happening. And Jesus says, he's aware of this, and he says, he says those words we don't ever want to hear Jesus say about us. Oh, you of little faith. Why are you discussing among yourselves the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive? That is, don't you get it? Don't you remember the five loaves that fed the 5,000? And how many baskets you gathered? Or the seven loaves that fed the 4,000? And how many baskets you gathered up afterwards? How is it that you failed to understand that I did not speak about bread? Jesus rebukes them with those words we never want to hear. Oh, you of little faith. It was their lack of faith that kept them from hearing him, from getting it. Preoccupations are like that. Everyday worries are like that. They can distract us from Christ. And so what Jesus does 
is he administers a corrective and reminds them of two things that they have lost sight of because they left the cooler with the bread in the driveway. That is who he is, who it is who's in the boat with them, and how he has provided for them previously. He does this by reminding them of not one, but two great feeding miracles. The feeding of the 5,000, which could have been as many as 20,000 people total, and the feeding of the 4,000, counting men only again, could have been as many as 10,000 or more. These miracles, like all of Jesus' miracles, are intended to reveal to them who he is and to bolster their faith. They're reminding him then that he is the one who provides. The first of those, the 5,000, happens in Jewish territory. It's, it's like reminding them, I'm the Savior of Israel. I will make provision for you. The second, the feeding of the 4,000, happens in Gentile territory. And it's like, I am the Savior of the nations. I will provide all that you need. Jesus is the sustainer of all. Paul would write it this way. He says in Colossians 1, For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible, invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things. And in him all things hold together. He sustains it all. He can make bread to feed thousands, tens of thousands. You don't have to worry about the 13 in the boat because Jesus is one of those 13. And he has done it for these disciples. They're the ones who picked up all those baskets. It's interesting to me that when the, when the 5,000 were fed, they had 12 baskets full left over, one for each of those disciples. So they get it. And it's interesting, now that Jesus has reminded them of who it is in the boat and how he has provided for them before, now they get it. Um, he says, how is it that you fail to understand that I did not speak to you about bread? And he says, the same teaching that he started with, right? Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. He doesn't explain it anymore. He doesn't expound on it. He says the exact same thing that they didn't get the first time. But now they understood that they did not, he did not tell them to beware of the leaven of bread, but of the teaching of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Now, now they get it. When they're reminded of who it is that's in the boat with them, when they remember how he's provided for them in the past, then they hear his teaching. You know, things are tight. Things are tight for all of us these days, it seems. This whole recession thing just keeps hovering. Um, jobs are really scarce if you're looking for one. Um, raises are even scarcer if you're hoping for one. And those very real needs, those very real pressures can preoccupy us. They can make us worriers, distracted, 
unable to hear what God is saying to us, forgetful of who it is that's in the boat with us, who it is that's in our midst, and what it is that he has done for us. We have to remember who it is who is in our midst. It's interesting, Mark tells the same story in his gospel, and he says they, they forgot to take bread except for the one loaf that was in the boat. And, and some, some commentators say that's a reference to Jesus, who is the bread of life, who's in the boat with them. It's only when they remember that that they get it. And if you follow Christ, Jesus is with you. The creator and sustainer of all that is, he is with you in your boat, in the midst of you. You don't have to worry that you have no bread. He's with you. The one who has created and sustains every family everywhere, he's with you. The one who fed the 5,000, fed the 4,000, he's with you. And you are right to trust him. You can remember, you remember how he sustained you. I remember one of the most vivid Memories of God's provision for uh, our family happened over 25 years ago, and I remember it vividly, and I remember nothing, okay? Uh, it's that vivid to me. Uh, I was working as a civil engineer. I was uh, um, in seminary, but working as a civil engineer while I was going through uh, seminary at that time, and I was working in the Fort Worth branch, Fort Worth, Texas branch of our engineering firm. And uh, got, a, got a call from my wife that morning. We're pregnant. We're expecting our first child. This is great news. Hang up the phone. As I remember it, within an hour, my boss calls me into his office and tells me I've just lost my job. I've been laid off. Um, that's not what I expected. It's not what I hoped for. Um, but here we are. You know, God has provided for us. In fact, in that particular story, uh, by the end of that day, he had provided me a job in one of our other branches in, over in Dallas. Um, you got stories like that. You need to remember them. Remember how he has provided for you. Remember the words and works of Jesus. Um, there was a a story uh, about a birthday party back in June of 2006 for a little boy named Michael Emmanuel Jr., his sixth birthday, and friends and family were celebrating, where else? Chuck E. Cheese, uh, down their, their home down in uh, Boca Raton, Florida, and the party is grand, everything goes well until it's time to go home. All the children, the adults, they climb into three different vehicles and head home. Everyone except Michael. They forgot Michael, the birthday boy. At 10 o'clock, 10 p.m., the help finds Michael roaming around the play area at Chuck E. Cheese's. Michael's mom thought that he had gone home with his grandmother. And didn't even miss him until the next morning. We're like that. We're good at forgetting. I am the king of forgetting. My kids, 
It's, this is absolutely true. They'll start to tell me a story. Say, Dad, do you remember, do you remember when? And then they catch themselves and they say, never mind. And they don't even bother anymore. They know I have no idea what, what they're talking about. We're good at forgetting. We have to work at remembering. Remembering. Remembering the words and works of Jesus. Remembering the 5,000. Remembering the 4,000. Remembering how he provided for our own needs. Time, time and time again. We all have stories of the kind and sufficient provision of Jesus for us in our time of need. Don't we all have those stories? And we have them as a church family. You know, um, as, as one who derives his living from the church coffers, I watch, I watch what comes in as someone who's responsible for the families, the other families who um, derive their living from the resources of our church. I watch really closely uh, those things. You know, in, in the 20-some years of the life of our church, we've never missed a paycheck, not one for anyone. We've never not been able to pay a bill. We've been close, but we've never been late. We've never not been able to pay our bills. God has always provided. He has provided in an abundance so that we've been able to bless an orphanage in Wanamint, Haiti, and another one in Addis Ababa, Ethiopia, um, just out of the abundance that God has given to us, that he has shared with us. Giving in faith, trusting that Jesus is in this boat with us. And we are right to trust him. But it's easy to forget, especially in a time where every night you turn on the news and it's doom and gloom, the economy's horrible, it's getting worse. And it's easy. It's easy to want to hold back. It's easy to want to self-protect. You know, they say that in 2008, when things were really turning down, that charitable giving fell in 2008 by the largest percentage in five decades. Charitable giving, that's us. We're charitable giving. And so, you know, it's, it's that time of year again. Every November, we renew commitments to honor God by paying down the debt on our mortgage for this facility and the classrooms that we go in as adults, all of our children's classrooms in this building, our offices. I don't know about you, but when I get tight and I fill out that form that says I'm going to commit by God's grace to give this much money above and beyond my regular giving, this is not robbing from Peter to pay Paul. This is a special sacrifice that our families make to do this. Uh, I am tempted in hard times to hold back, to give less. Because, you know, there's always some need that eats the surplus up. You always think, some November I'm going to hit and I'm going to, I'm going to have plenty. And I'm going to be, but their income goes up and needs exceed it. You've seen that, haven't you? Isn't that always the way that it seems to happen? Um, but I do know, I do know that this act of generosity honors God, that paying off our debt honors God, that training our hearts to be generous so when the debt's gone, we're still generous, and we don't spend it all on me and mine. I know that honors God. 
And I know that Christ is in this boat with me. He's in our midst. He loves us. We are his people. I know those things. So in two weeks, we're going to ask you to make a commitment for the following year to our capital campaign to gladly and sacrificially give so that our church can be debt-free, so we can be increasingly useful in God's hands. We're over halfway done, but we're not done. We have to continue to be faithful. And as a church family, every year, just to whet our appetite and just to declare to God our commitment to what we're going to do with our resources when we're debt-free, we give 10% of any money that comes into our building fund away. And we have given to our local pregnancy support services. We've given to those orphanages in Addis Ababa, Ethiopia, and Wanamin, Haiti. We've given to flood victims, victims in Pakistan and to church plants in Tampa and D.C. And this year, we're going to set aside um, a chunk of that tithe, if you will, um, to help plant that church in Czech Republic. And we're going to set aside to begin the training and resourcing of church planters for the next, next church plant in one of our great cities here in North America. And it's finally on, on the dock for us to um, set aside some of those resources to begin to plant a local church, another um, local church in our area within spitting distance of North Wake so that we begin to more effectively reach our community. Um, that's where those resources will go this year. And so I, I want to encourage you to join us in this. I want to encourage you to honor God in this. I want to encourage you to trust Christ in this. We don't have any financial goal. We have one goal, and that is that every one of the people who calls North Wake home would say, I'm in. Every family, every single that says, this is my church, you'll say, I'm in. And if you can't give a dime, that's what you write on your card. You know, I'm in. Count me in. And then when God provides for you, you be faithful to that pledge, and you come in. But we want everybody to say, we're in. We say it with our resources if we can. We say it by faith, expecting God to give. We, if we don't have it right now. Um, we trust God. and We honor him together in this important matter. If you didn't get information, it's out in the lobby at the information table where this box is supposed to be. Um, pick it up there on your way out. And in two weeks, we'll make those commitments to the Lord. But Jesus rebukes us with these penetrating words. Oh, ye of little faith. He does that when we forget who it is who's in the boat with us and how he's cared for us in the past. These words, it's interesting, these words in Jesus' teaching are reserved for the people who know him best. People from his hometown and his disciples. People who are familiar with Jesus. People who know him, but who ought to know him better. That's us. And um, you are suffering this today because I have been suffering it for the last um, probably six months or so in my studies personally. This is what my devotions have centered around. Because I heard these words spoken to me um, by my Savior uh, back this summer. Very aware. But this is my indictment. I don't want it to be yours. So how is your faith? Are you expectantly, hopefully praying? 
are you confidently trusting your needs to him? And we want to give you a chance to do that now. The worship team's going to come and lead us in a closing response of worship. If God's prompting you today to cast your cares on him or to repent of not trusting him, as we worship, just make your way down and um, in humility bow before him and cast those cares on the Lord who is good and worthy of our trust. Let's stand. Let's worship him together.